Next we have James Coleman. James is Associate Professor of Law at SMU's Dedman School of Law. Uh, his scholarship addresses regulation of North American energy companies. He's written about cross-border regulatory politics and how competing pressures from investors and regulators affect energy companies. But recently, and what we want to talk about, he's been writing and testifying before Congress on the issues involved in permitting network infrastructure. And you have a forthcoming article in um, Ohio State Law Journal that summarizes a lot of his thinking about that and, and a lot of this discussion will revolve around what you said there and also in the congressional testimony. So that article addresses regulatory obstacles to the permitting of pipelines and transmission lines. Can you briefly explain why you see this as such a pressing regulatory problem right now? Sure. We're fortunate at the moment because uh, we have improving technology in the United States that has led to booms in oil production as well as cleaner sources like natural gas and renewable power. So we're producing more and more and we can do it more cheaply. As the cost of production comes down though, the key question has been how do we get those energy sources to the markets that need them? And unfortunately, our cleaner sources, that is gas and solar power or wind power, are very expensive to transport. So with traditional sources like oil and coal, you can send them by rail, ship, or truck, and you can send oil by pipeline as well. So people talk about world oil or coal prices because if the price goes up anywhere, you can just ship them more coal or oil until the price equalizes. But gas and power, our cleaner energy sources, are a lot harder to move. With gas, you're going to need a multi-billion dollar pipeline, it's airtight, or you'll have to build a multi-billion dollar facility that will cool that gas most of the way to absolute zero so you can load it on a quarter billion dollar ship to take it overseas. It's liquefied natural gas, LNG. With wind or solar power, you only have one option, a multi-billion dollar power line. Right now, we are wasting gas and wind power because we haven't built the power lines and pipelines to take them to market. So we have gas and wind power that producers would give away for free. In some cases, they'd be willing to pay people to take it off their hands, uh, but we can't use it because we're not getting it to market. And so what, what do you see as the sort of impediments to, to solving that problem? Well, I think there are a couple problems. One problem is the difficulty of individual permitting processes, and the second is layering those permitting processes on top of each other. So if you, you know, interestingly, oil is often in the news, oil transport, whether it's Keystone XL or Dakota Access uh, Pipeline, which was to go from North Dakota, to Illinois, but this is actually economically more important for the gas sources and the renewable power sources. Uh, and with renewable power sources, you have the problem of state-by-state -state permitting approval. And there, I think the big problem is what maybe I'd call the three-state problem. So historically, a lot of the power transmission infrastructure was built within a single state. So you had both the producers and the consumers benefiting. Then maybe you had state-to-state -state transport, and at least you had producers in one state and consumers in the other, and often you had two-way traffic on it. 
What's changed recently is wind power, uh, you know, work here at the University of Texas has shown that on average, it doesn't, it's the cheapest source of power in a whole region of the country from North Dakota down to Texas. That uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's the most valuable because it can't just turn on whenever, but it's the cheapest on average. And we could get a lot of value from that if we could move it to the markets where it's necessary, but typically that requires power lines that go through three states. And for that intermediate state, it becomes a little bit harder to explain what the benefit to the state is because it maybe doesn't have a lot of producers and maybe doesn't have a lot of consumers. Think of the example of uh, Arkansas potentially blocking power that wants to get from uh, from Oklahoma producers to consumers in Tennessee, or you could think about a state like Missouri, again, blocking uh, transmission from the plains to the U.S. Midwest where that power is needed. You also identify problems associated with natural gas pipeline permitting, mm -hmm. um, and can you just talk a little bit about those for a second? Well, with natural gas pipelines, it is actually a somewhat similar problem and a problem that we've seen before. The natural gas pipeline regime, I think, if you ask anybody who regulates natural gas pipeline siting, the natural answer is the federal government. And that's what, what we've always said, but it's more complicated than that, as we find in many areas of energy law. And so you have uh, particular areas where, uh, you know, New York is the classic example, blocking federally approved pipelines. Now, can you just say how? Uh, well, so they, there's delegated authority under the Clean Water Act. So this is, a, you know, the states implementing a federal regime. So it's not a typical preemption scenario where you could say, well, it's federally regulated. Therefore, the states don't get to decide. But uh, they do have the ability to issue those Clean Water Act permits. And if they deny them, so far, the rule seems to be, well, they have... Um, they can do that. So in other words, they can block those federally approved pipelines. That's a little bit ironic since the history of why this was given to the federal government was because there had been the danger of states like Pennsylvania saying, oh, we don't want to let, uh, we don't want to let natural gas through our state, which made it difficult to bring natural gas from the uh, gas fields in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana up to the markets that needed it in the Northeast. So this is the Section 401 certification right. process you're exactly. talking about, and, and that's, you're citing that as an example of kind of erecting an obstacle for gas pipelines that come from, say, gas production in Pennsylvania to New England. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting because it's made it, you know, historically we've said, oh, it's easier to permit natural gas pipelines than power lines because you don't need that state-by-state -state approval. But I think what we're finding out now is actually it can be just as difficult if the states use all the leverage they have to potentially block those. And it's not just New York. You've seen other states that have not necessarily denied authority for the pipelines to be built, but instead have used that authority to uh, try and, you know, get a get a contribution from the gas pipelines that want to go through their state. Um, it's interesting because in some ways this parallels the state-by-state -state problem, parallels the problem that we've a long, for a long time dealt with in eminent domain and energy siting, which is that if you have a, a single landowner, whether you want to think about it as a state or a private landowner, that can uh, has a veto decision on a necessary uh, linear infrastructure project, they have the ability to, in theory, hold out for effectively the entire economic surplus associated with the problem. And when you have those repeated, you know, monopsony 
negotiations, you are uh, very likely to have you know, situations where you end up with deadweight loss, power lines. You're, you're also critical of um, how NEPA reviews, National Environmental Policy Act, Policy Act environmental reviews are conducted in uh, permitting proceedings as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's, there's two, there's sort of separate systems there. So I think the general National Environmental Policy Act uh, system has gotten a little bit too slow for environmental impact statements, uh, for projects where environmental impact statements are required. So there's a, under the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, there are several different levels of review. You could have categorical exclusions. You could have a um, you could have an environmental assessment that finds that there's no significant impact, um, or you could have uh, environmental impact statements, which is a full-blown review under NEPA. That is only about 200 projects a year, so that's a minority, but it is our biggest projects, and it's a lot of our new infrastructure projects. I think there's been uh, bipartisan agreement, at least among uh, in Congress and uh, the presidents, that those processes have started to take too long. So, you know, if you look at the start of President Obama's term, it took about 3.5 years on average. President Obama took several steps to try and speed those up through executive orders, through statute, etc. Um, but, and yet, by 2016, the average review that was completed in 2016 had taken 5.1 years. So we moved from three and a half to 5.1 years. If you look at, uh, so that's a review that ended in 2016. If you were to start a review today, who knows how long it would take. Now, there's some good news in this sense because if you look at natural gas pipelines, uh, they are subject to the same National Environmental Policy Act review process, but some of the judicial review is different because it happens uh, just in the D.C. Circuit. How is that, how is that different? Well, uh, that means that, you know, one, people that want to stop the project through litigation don't have two bites at the apple. They can't go both in the district court and in the appellate court. And the second thing is that um, most NEPA lawsuits are filed in the Ninth Circuit. So actually a majority, although we, you know, we have... 11th Circuit, DC Circuit, uh, et cetera, we, most of the cases are filed in the Ninth Circuit, and I think that has led to a NEPA jurisprudence in the Ninth Circuit that's a little bit different than the rest, than the rest of the country. So I would say that's been overall a pretty successful um, method of speeding up those reviews a little bit, and if you look at the natural gas reviews, they're typically done a little bit they're typically done a little bit faster. So I would say that's successful. I would like to see that expanded to other energy projects like uh, power lines. Um, I think currently one thing that is holding back some development of renewable sources is that, you know, first of all, you don't want to do it on federal land. Secondly, you don't want to have your power lines cross federal land. You don't want to end up in a situation where you're going to be subject to a, a federal review on top of the state-by-state -state review for power lines. I would like to see some of those projects subjected to the same system, which I think is working pretty well for natural gas in the D.C. Uh, circuit. I have some concerns about natural gas as well, which I can talk about. But just, just to nail that down, so you mean a direct review to the D.C. circuit? Yep, exactly. Okay. I think There's one other element of NEPA review that we haven't got to yet, and that's the coverage of the environmental, right. uh, the environmental review itself, and there's been some recent litigation about that, and you've commented on that. Could you talk a little bit about how you, what you think about that issue? Yeah, so in terms of uh, what, there's been a move 
to for NEPA environmental impact statements not only to cover the impacts of the project itself, but also to cover uh, energy markets that it would enable upstream from the project, increased production of oil, gas, or power, uh, and downstream from the production, increased consumption of oil, gas, or power. Uh, my concern about that is that I don't think we can say very much useful about um, what is the effects of these are upstream and downstream compared to all the environmental consequences of the pipeline, power line, liquefied natural gas facility itself, which I think is where the focus of the environmental review should be. Let me give you a kind of real quick. Yeah. Is it that we can't say much useful or that the effects themselves are just kind of marginal? No, I think the I think there are undoubtedly effects. Every time you build a uh, any any energy project in the United States affects has ripple effects in a butterfly sense, not only on uh, markets within the United States but abroad as well. In fact, that's why we build them, right? I mean, in fact, usually you know the standard is, hey, we we build this because there's a need for more consumption, more uh, more production upstream. The difficulty is tying, seeing what the specific impact of any particular project is. So, um, so I led a scientific team that looked at what's the impact of liquefied natural gas. No, we weren't looking at a liquefied natural gas facility. We said, what's the impact of, it's a little bit easier to study, liquefied nat natural gas exports. We were looking at Canada in general. And uh, what we found is it depends. It really depends because if you send it abroad and it uh, goes to countries where they're mostly relying on coal, you might lower greenhouse gas emissions abroad. You probably would. Um, on the other hand, if you send it to places that already have a lot of nuclear or a lot of renewables, you might potentially increase greenhouse gas emissions. Now, uh, take that you know, general conclusion and try to apply it to any specific project where we really don't know exactly um, exactly where it's going to go, and it's very difficult. Let me, the best example, the best example that has been done of trying to review impacts um, of upstream or downstream has been the uh, review conducted by the State Department under President Obama on the Keystone XL pipeline. And that became very high profile because in a speech at Georgetown, President Obama ad-libbed, it wasn't in his prepared remarks, he said, by the way, we're not going to approve this pipeline if it increases greenhouse gas emissions, i.e. if it increases oil production in Canada. And so that became a very central focus of the State Department review. I would encourage you to read that review. It's about 200 pages. There's never been anything that's done that's as good as that. What, what did the State Department say? Well, it said, if oil prices are a, above $75 a barrel, this is gonna, the pipeline will reduce greenhouse gas emissions because basically it will take oil that would have gone on trains from and mean that instead it goes, um, it goes by pipeline, which is more efficient, fewer greenhouse gas emissions. The State Department said between $65 and $75 a barrel, there is going to be a, uh, it will increase greenhouse gas emissions because the pipeline will make certain projects you know, viable that would not otherwise have been viable. Lower than $65 a barrel, the, the uh, State Department said, you know, probably it won't increase greenhouse gas emissions, but it's hard to say. We haven't really looked at it. Okay, the NEPA review for that project took seven years. By the time it was done, 
where oil prices, you know, $85 a barrel, between 65 and 70. No, they were $35 a barrel. So it was entirely useless by the time that the, by the, time that the review came out. Nonetheless, State, Bar State Department said, bottom line, this is not going to increase greenhouse gas emissions. That's our best guess. So what does uh, Secretary Kerry and President Obama say about it? Well, they said, regardless of this review that says it's not going to increase greenhouse gas emissions, we need to reject the pipeline because this is really in the record of decision because it's perceived that it will increase greenhouse gas emissions. So my question is, how valuable is a study that takes seven years, it's our state-of-the-art study, um, it comes up with a, with a, um, that comes up with a study that basically, I'm, I have my questions about the benefits of the study, even if oil prices had been the same. I'm not sure it's plausible that something goes, the pipeline goes from reducing greenhouse gas emissions to increasing them exactly at $75 a barrel. Um, and there were criticisms by environmental groups and others of that study, which I think were valid. Um, but it's the best one that we have done. And after we've done that review, so here's a review on this topic, what we say as well, this is so worthless that we'd rather, we would privilege, to use Jeremy Jacobs' term, we would privilege contrary public perception to what we've actually studied to be the case. So I, I just, I'm very skeptical that this adds value um, to what, uh, is a uh, in very valuable, in general, environmental impact statement process. And so to back out a little bit, when you, when you look at these various phenomena, the holdup problem, um, the length of time it takes to permit, and the recent litigation about the scope of an environmental review, and you sort of make a general observation that these are all adding to the difficulty for investors of investing in a capital-intensive, long-lived um, network either pipelines or transmission line type of project. And can you talk a little bit about why that's an important problem? I, mean, I think you did a little bit with, with uh, wind power and solar power. Do you feel the same way about pipelines? I think I have I've really three concerns, and I think they would be shared by different, uh, different subsets of people who are concerned about energy. Um, I'm very concerned about power lines. Uh, as, as we described, you know, most of the things that are being used to held up oil uh, and gas pipelines whether it is, you know, a layering, another level of federal review, expanded environmental impact statements, um, or uh, trying to uh, limit use of eminent domain would all affect power lines as well. Okay. Now, to the extent that gas pipelines are being held up, is that a problem? I believe it is. Um, I think that, you know, there, there are a bunch of potential environmental benefits to gas pipelines. So, one is climate change is not the only problem. In fact, if you look at the Clean Power Plan, most of the measured benefits didn't come from climate change. They came from uh, reduced air pollution. On air pollution, natural gas is a, a huge, huge benefit. On climate change, it's a benefit, but not as big of, not as big of one. But on, also note that it works really well with renewable sources of power because it can ramp up or down to match unpredictable renewables with uh, unpredictable source of uh, power demand. Um, also, uh, you know, I think if you look at the price differential for consumers, I think there's a strong case for more natural gas transport. Typically, the cheapest natural gas in the world um, at least in a large market, is basically in the United States between Texas and Pennsylvania, right? But uh, twice in the last four years, the most expensive natural gas in the world has been, you know, if Pennsylvania is the cheapest, 
just a little bit down I-90 in Boston. So you have prices that are four, five, six times higher for natural gas, and they've had to import liquefied natural gas from Russia. Uh, they still do regularly from Trinidad and Tobago. And that is, um, that's, you know, that's an economic harm, but it also imposes an environmental harm. If you look at this last year, uh, the power mix at times in New England, the largest source of power was oil-fired power. Now, that is crazy because oil-fired power is not only much worse for climate than natural gas power, but it's also uh, it's much worse for air emissions. I mean, it approaches, uh, approaches coal and how dirty uh, it, is, it is to burn. And so I think there are some uh, perverse consequences that are happening because we uh, are missing out on natural gas transport. Okay. Why don't we stop there? Uh, thank you very much. Okay.